Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. Uh, He is the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, David. Good to be back with you, Jordan. Just give people a brief history of kind of how you've come to where you are today uh, for people who haven't heard about you before. Well, I started in the financial services industry right out of school, um, really knowing that I wanted to help people. Um, kind of interesting, I was uh, initially going to, uh, going to become a medical doctor, and I decided uh, it was right at the beginning of managed care, which I now call mangled care. And I didn't like what I was seeing on the horizon with all the managed care stuff. And I decided, you know what, I don't need to go this route, but I still want to help people. And I love math and I love finance, so it was a natural fit to get into this. Um, I worked uh, in a couple of agencies early on in my career in the Hartford area. Uh, for the first 12 years, and I was pretty much a stock market-based advisor, as as most people were back in the 80s and 90s. And in 1999, I started to get really concerned about the market being top-heavy. I knew from my studies of market history that we were due for a significant drop, and it would be a long time before things came back. So I had to make a decision, and the decision I made was to change to, instead of becoming a stock market specialist, to being the person who specializes in, as I like to say, the universe of non-stock market income generating alternatives. And that's where I've been for the last 20 years. Very good. Let's kind of take a look at the overall situation before we get to some of the specifics in the income generating world. So here's the situation. The economy is growing here. We have interest rates that are still relatively low. The Fed Reserve's been cutting rates after having raised them last year. You have a huge amount of negative interest rates around the world, trillions of dollars worth of negative interest rates. How do you kind of evaluate the the overall economic situation these days? Well, our economy is kind of like a big room with central air conditioning and a little space heater in it. If you stand really close to the space heater, you'll feel the warmth. But if you get, you know, more than six or ten feet away from it, the central air is going to overpower the space heater. And that's where we are right now because most of the economies of the world right now are not growing. Uh, many are in recession, they're struggling, thus the negative interest rates. Um, we are that one silver lining, though, and in big part it's because of our consumers. Our consumer spending is still quite strong. So some people think that our market's going to continue to trudge full speed ahead. I am much more leery of it simply because, again, the central air conditioning over time should overpower that little space heater. And uh, there's a saying that I came up with a while ago, and I started reusing it again. You know, if if you take a clean shirt and you put it in a hamper with a bunch of dirty shirts, eventually the clean shirt's going to get dirty. And I'm afraid that's exactly what's starting to happen here, uh, because we're starting to see now sentiment in our country uh, be a little less optimistic, some leading indicators uh, uh, changing a little bit adversely. So manufacturing index, so things like that are now starting to say, okay, we may now start, we're starting to pick up some of the dirt from the rest of the world. You've just come out with a new book called The Retirement Income Story, the story behind the launch of the Retirement Income Store, 
And in that book, you talk about the three main factors that have made the stock market go up so much in the last few years. What are those three factors? Well, uh, a big a big part of it, first of all, the, the recently the Trump tax cut really did help uh, the stock market in a, in a final boom. But before that, quantitative easing. Quantitative easing had a huge effect because it had been done to unprecedented levels. Um, share buybacks have caused it because uh, as corporate America now can borrow money at low interest rates, the interest rate they pay on the debt is less than the dividend they were paying on their stock. So it literally saves them money by buying back their own stock, creating artificial demand, pushing up the price. Uh, and lastly, you know, margin debt has started to get back to high levels. In fact, some studies show that the only time margin debt was actually higher on a percentage basis than it is today uh, was back in 1929. So those three are all continuing. I mean, the Fed has gone back to easing instead of tightening. Margin debt continues to grow, and companies continue to do corporate buybacks. So why can't the market just keep going up? Well, it can. It can go up for a good period of time. There's no question. Um, you know, Ponzi schemes can continue for a very long period of time. Um, but eventually, the bubble's going to burst. And, you know, I like to ask people whether or not they like to bet on something that's fundamentally sound or something that they know is unsound sheerly on, on speculation. Analogy I use is, you know, if you were to go into a gym and you see somebody bench pressing 400 pounds and then, you know, the person next to you nudges you and says, well, he's on a bunch of anabolic steroids. That's why he's bench pressing so much. So now we come out and, you know, we try to have a little wager. Well, what do you think he would really be able to bench press if he weren't on steroids? Is it 275? Is it 300? Is it three and a quarter? We really don't know. But what we do know is it would be a lot less. And eventually that weightlifter has to go off the steroids. If he stays on his entire life, he'll die. The drugs will kill him. So eventually um, there has to be some reckoning here from all this economic steroids that we've been seeing. The question is, when is it going to happen? So it's kind of like the game of musical chairs when you're a child. The music stops, somebody's stuck without a chair. So when you ask people, gee, is it worth investing in this, taking the chance that the music's going to stop and you might be the one stuck without a chair, or if you know it's not fundamentally sound, it's based upon artificiality, would you rather just not play that game? And most people say, when they're being brutally honest with themselves, they'd rather not play that game with the majority of their money. So you're saying those three factors, the margin debt, the buybacks, and the Fed easing are all steroids, in effect, uh, that can't be sustained or it'll kill the patient. They are, and by far the biggest one was the quantitative easing. Um, as soon as we stopped quantitative easing in this country, they started it in Europe. So there's always been some part of the world that's been, that's been easing. And, it, Jordan, if I take you back before that, we've been artificially creating demand for goods and services, even if you go back 30 years. You know, Madison Avenue isn't really that far from Wall Street. So I remember even in the 1980s when all of a sudden they'd start to have a commercial for a boat that you can buy. And the boat wasn't $47,000. It was $392 per month. And at about the same time was when all of a sudden car leases started to become popular, where people who used to keep cars for many years would now think, heck, if I'm going to have a car payment my entire life, why not just lease one every two or three years? It's about the same time we had the liar loans on the, on the mortgages. 
Uh, I know in 1989, I'd gotten one of those first liar loans where uh, basically I was just asked to say how much I earned. I was putting down a big enough chunk of money, and they just took my word for it. So we've been creating artificial demand for goods in this country now for over three decades. And that has also caused a bubble in consumer demand. And that underlies all this. Then that bubble really got pushed forward even to a greater degree by all the quantitative easing. Because what that did was create, instead of an economic recovery, it created an asset recovery. Where now, instead of people taking that new money that was printed and put out in the economy to spend it on goods and services, they're taking that money and investing it. So now all of a sudden all the asset values have come up. And that was further pushed along by the other two things, which are maybe to a lesser degree of significance, but nonetheless are significant, and that's the corporate buybacks and the margin debt. So you're saying we're in a bubble now. What assets are in a bubble? Stocks, bonds, real estate, all of them? I mean, what is actually wildly overvalued in a bubble today? To some degree, everything is in a bubble, because when you create, you know, there's a reason why economists say when you print money, it creates inflation. So everyone was scratching their head wondering why after 2008 we didn't have crazy inflation as we'd normally think about it in the CPI index. And it's because all the textbooks have always said that when you print money, it creates inflation. But they assume one thing. They assume that all that money that goes into circulation will be spent, will be spent on goods and services, which will push up the prices. But when they're not spent, when they're invested, it creates asset inflation across the board. So we've seen it in pretty much every single category. Now, real estate. I'm a little less concerned in real estate simply because there's an underlying demand for real estate. Right now I'm standing in an office building that I need to have to run my businesses. I need to be in this. So so there's an underlying demand that's going to keep the prices from dropping to far. My home, I need to have a roof over my head, so there's an underlying demand for real, even residential real estate. But stocks are simply pieces of paper. Uh, there's no basic underlying demand for stocks. It's just a method for people to make money. And as a result, when stocks go into a bubble, there's a lot more downside potential, generally speaking, than there is in real estate. How about bonds? Bonds are probably my least concern. I'm sorry? I was saying bonds. I mean, there's been a huge amount of bonds issued and uh, around mm-hmm. the world. So you would think and interest rates have fallen so far, you could say this is the biggest bond bubble ever. But bonds, you ultimately have a contract. You have a contract that says that the corporation or the municipality has to pay a certain amount of interest. At the end of time, we'll pay back the principal. So yes, bonds right now are at a premium. And if any quote, bond bubble that people think exists bursts, those prices can drop. But at the end of the day, it's if you have rental property. If you have rental property and there's a real estate crash, as long as your tenant is creditworthy and he still makes good on his rental payments, it doesn't matter to you anymore that the real estate's worth less because you're getting the cash flow from it. And that's very much how bonds work because essentially you're investing by contract. Yeah, very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. 
Uh, his book that just came out is called The Retirement Income Story, the story behind the, re- the launch of the Retirement Income Store. You can find out more at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Your leadership journey must be a continuous process of education and improvement. If you think you've learned all you need to know, think again. Find out the latest from contemporary authors on topics from character to values and everything in between. Discover insights into servant leader fundamentals along with your host, Tom Crea. Tune into Your Evolving Leadership Journey, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He is the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. His new book is called The Retirement Income Story, the story behind the launch of the Retirement Income Store, and you can find out more at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So in this era where you think there's a huge bubble uh, in stocks, particularly real estate to some extent and bonds, why should people emphasize income instead of growth when we've had a, a bull market in the stock market for well over 10 years here? Well, first of all, within that, or I should say right before that bull market or kind of overlapping it, um, was a 13-year period of zero growth from 2000 to 2013. Um, most stock market investors literally had zero growth, and they had two major drops in the middle. 
So if someone's member of the income generation, uh, the phrase we've coined on the television show for baby boomers, those of us, you know, in our 50s or over, you have to say, well, if I'm going to retire any time in the next 13 years, there is a chance that if I'm in the stock market, I could end up being underwater when I want to retire. In which case, now I've got, got to make the uncomfortable decision of do I, do I postpone retirement? Do I retire on less money? What do I do? So people tend to make the transition from growth to income a little bit too late. And, you know, if somebody were was 55 years old in the year 2000 and wanted to retire at age 65, well, they would have gotten stuck in that trough. And they would have had to make that very tough decision about retiring on less or working longer. So my biggest battle that I fight with everyone is really that they need to start making that transition, in most cases, shortly after they're 50 years old, going from growth to income. And that's harder to do psychologically for many people because, you know, think about it. We're a generation of people that became kind of sort of addicted to the stock market. The 80s and 90s were the best market in U.S. history. So it became very, very easy um, for us to think about growth, growth, and more growth. And that's what investing is all about. And many have forgotten that you can get a decent return investing for income, investing for interest or dividends. And when I tell people they can often get 4 to 5% net of fees from just interest or dividends, then all of a sudden they're more open to making that transition in their early 50s and not, and, and, and not staying as heavily invested in the stock market as long as they otherwise would have. Traditional income-oriented vehicles like CDs, money market funds, savings accounts, continue to be extremely low. Even the long-term treasury bonds are 2% or less than that. Do you see that changing anytime soon, or is that the reality that people have to feel uh, that they have to deal with, and therefore they have to do alternatives to the traditional income-oriented vehicles? Sadly, it's the new reality. Um, you know, I, I actually said in my newsletter to clients back in, oh, well, gosh, I think it was May of 2008, that uh, this time the Fed, Federal Reserve will... In, just in the middle of the financial crisis, of course, 2008, will lower short-term rates to zero. And when that's not enough to get things going, they'll come up with newfangled, unprecedented ways of stimulating the economy, which they did all the quantitative easing and so on. And I then went on to say that we're, we're likely to be the new Japan, the new country that's in a permanent low interest rate environment. And, and now that I, I say that, I look back now 11 years later, and you know, if we're the new Japan, then what is Denmark and what is Sweden and what is Germany with all negative interest rates? So we have to stay there in, in a low interest rate environment because what happens now is as soon as our rates start to come up just a little bit, European investors look over at our bonds and say, "Woo, these look really attractive. Now, nobody listening to the show here probably thinks that 2% is anything to write home about, but when you're used to negative interest rates in your own country and you can invest in the United States at 2%, all of a sudden, you want to send your money over here and make that investment. And that basically serves as a governor, which is going to be keeping our interest rates down for the foreseeable future, the new norm. What, what message are the markets giving of having 15, 17 trillion, whatever it is, some huge amount in negative interest rates, where you're literally not earning anything, but you're going to get back less than you gave them in the first place, which is true pretty much throughout Europe and Japan many places around the world, what economic message are those negative interest rates giving? Well, 
the message that they're giving it, to me is that central banks have taken on the role of God. Um, they believe that it's their job to manipulate everything on pretty much a permanent level. And it's telling the consumer that they don't have enough confidence in the economies alone to sustain themselves without that artificial influence coming from the, the, the various central banks. And, you know, this has been something that really starts when you, when, you know, when you go off the gold standard, and now all these countries have this fiat currency. The currencies aren't based upon anything. So as a result, when you start printing a little bit more to try to get more cash in circulation, to try to stimulate it, that's that economic steroid I talked about. And, you know, the thing about drugs is it takes more and more, it takes higher doses to get the same high as you were able to get last time with a lower dose. And as long as politicians are politicians, they're never going to want the massive recession to occur, if they can help it, on their watch. So they're constantly stimulating, trying to keep, trying to keep that ball up in the air. But it takes more and more of the drug each and every time. And how's it all going to end? When's it all going to end? That much I can't tell you. Um, but I don't, see it cha- I don't see it changing anytime soon. What would be a catalyst to change things from where they are now to a big downturn, both economically and market downturn? Because we've been having this situation, negative interest rates, the stock markets in general in Europe and here have been going up. What would be a catalyst to change the direction? Well, a catalyst to change the stock market, I don't think the stock market needs much of a catalyst uh, because things are already starting to slow down a little bit. We have the second longest uh, bull market, cyclical bull market in history. So that's why a lot of big investors are a little nervous now. They have one finger on the trigger. So I don't think the stock market needs a ton to turn. And like I said, it could go, it could go a lot higher because of these influences, but I also don't think it, it, it takes a lot to send it heading south. Uh, interest rates are a different story. Um, the central banks would have to decide, um, a majority of them, that they're willing to take their medicine, that they're willing to allow a long recession to happen in their respective countries and to let things get back to normal. You know, when, when you get on too much of a drug and it takes more and more to get that same high and then all of a sudden you try to wean yourself off a drug, there's withdrawal. And in our economy, when you're talking about economic steroids, that withdrawal is a long, protracted recession. And there are some people that think that we need to just take our medicine once and for all and let things fall where they are. In the long term, it'll be much better for the world economy. Um, but I don't think that anybody's really, really going to do that. It's not very um, political. As far as our country's con- yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's too much of a political hot button. And, you know, and, and politics aside, even the central bankers, who in theory at least uh, should not be motivated by politics, the central bankers, you know, they don't want to see people suffer on their watch. They don't want to have the reputation as being the person who let everything collapse and let everyone suffer and unemployment rate go into double digits and people lose their homes. They, they don't want to do that if they can help it. So in some ways you can't blame them, but it's, it's not... It's keeping us from having a long-term solution. Now, in our country, in theory, uh, the biggest risk that we have is, with interest rates is if we ever uh, lost our status as the world's reserve currency. If that were to happen, then we can see interest rates skyrocket here in our country. 
um, because we, more than anyone, have the ability is print and print and print um, and, and not worry about it. Uh, so that's always a concern, but, but I don't see that happening in our lifetime or, frankly, in our children's lifetime. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we, for example, in Europe right now, we have a new central bank president coming in, Christine Lagarde. Um, do you think she'll make a difference in, in what's been done with Mario Draghi before? Or, or just keep, as you've put, more and more steroids? Oh, I think it's going to be staying on the course um, for the most part. There might be some minute differences. I haven't taken a lot of time to study specifically what her thought processes are um, relative to Draghi, but, but it's going to be, generally speaking, more the same, trying to keep things going keep, and keep, keep the economies from, from stalling. Yeah. Okay, in the next segment, we're going to go into some different alternatives that you uh, kind of look at in income. Um, just before we get to that, though, um, amongst all the different kinds of income, how do you choose which one is appropriate for your particular situation? How can the advisors that you advise help people pick what's best for their own situations? Well, it really depends upon somebody's risk tolerance level, um, just like in the stock market. Um, there's, you know, there's, there are different grades of aggressive. There are different grades of conservative. There are different grades of moderate. And some of the things are, as I mentioned before, investing by contract, um, like a bond and a bond-like instrument where it's very much investing by contract. And therefore, as long as the issuer doesn't default, you know exactly what you're going to get. If an investor is willing to take a little more risk, they can get into certain types of uh, high-yielding investments, but investments that don't have a contract per se, which means there's a greater risk that that yield that's getting generated could drop or the actual value of the underlying investment could drop. So it really depends upon the individual. Um, but there are you know, nine or ten different things in that income-generating world, at least in, in terms of general classes of items, uh, that people need to look at when they're trying to generate true interest and dividends from their portfolio. And after the break, we're going to come back and get into many of those and do the pros and cons of each. My guest this hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. His new book is called The Retirement Income Story, the story behind the launch of the Retirement Income Store. And you can find out more at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. 
Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. He's an expert on income-oriented strategies. You can see more at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Jordan. So let's go into some of the income alternatives that might be good and just kind of tell me with pros and cons of each of these and how they fit into what you recommend to clients. The first would be preferred shares, uh, stocks typically issued by highly rated companies, financial companies, utilities, and so on. What are the pros and cons of buying preferred stocks? Well, preferreds are interesting because they're technically considered a class of stock, um, but they're much more bond-like than they are stock-like. You know, they're, they're bond-like because they pay a fixed income called a dividend. It's not called an interest. It's called a dividend. So they're bond-like in that regard. Uh, they're also bond-like because they have a par value. So, yeah, they're going to fluctuate in value, but uh, unlike a common stock that can fluctuate to extreme levels, usually preferreds aren't going to do that because they stay sticky, if you will, around the par value or the face value. And lastly, they tend to fluctuate and move more with changes in the bond market than they do with changes in the stock market. So those are all the reasons that, that preferreds are more bond-like than they're stock-like. So why are they considered stocks? Because unlike a bond, there's no maturity date. And you see, that's important, especially if you think interest rates are going to go up. If you think interest rates are going to skyrocket, then you say, gosh, my bond or my preferred goes underwater. Uh, it's worth less. At least if I have a bond, well, heck, I can hold it to maturity. I get my interest payments the entire time. And, and when it matures, I get my principal back. But when I have a preferred that's perpetual, it's great that I've got my dividend payments uh, guaranteed by the issuer, but I can't, there's no maturity date that I can hold this to and be guaranteed to get all my money back. So preferreds have more risk in terms of loss of capital because of that lack of a maturity date. Here's how a lot of people look at preferreds. Uh, let's say you bought a triple B bond that was a 10-year bond, and you might get a 4% yield. Well, if you buy a triple B preferred, you might get 6%. You might get 2% more. So your average investor comparing those two would say, gosh, if I, if I held the preferred for 10 years, I'd make 2% more in income per year for 10 years. Cumulatively, that's 20% more. 
So now, even if I had to sell that bond, or that preferred rather, after 10 years, even if I took a 10% loss, I'm still ahead of the game because I got a lot more yield along the way. Um, So preferreds are great for people who are looking for income and don't care about the principal loss. If you don't care if there's a little bit of principal loss, but you want that steady income because you're going into retirement, then that's what a preferred is designed to do. Do you think it's better to do individual preferreds? Because there are a lot of closed-end funds and exchange-traded funds that have preferreds. Is that a better way for people to play preferreds than individual issues? I'm a big fan of individual preferreds uh, for many reasons. Uh, with interest rates going up, I'm not as worried about, so with interest rates going down, I'm not as worried about the concern I just shared that, oh gosh, this thing might be underwater for a long time. But what you have is a little bit of the opposite concern. You have the issue that uh, preferreds can get called when interest rates drop because the issuer you know, doesn't want to be paying a 6% dividend rate odd, you know, out into the future if they can borrow money less expensive. So they want to call it, uh, i.e., give investors back their capital, and go refinance it somewhere else. So it's always nice when you have individual preferreds and something gets called, because now you get to go into the portfolio and say, okay, where are still the best yield opportunities for me to take this preferred that's just paid its principal back to me and now reinvest those proceeds into something that is either paying a good yield or the call date is far enough out where I don't have to worry about this getting called again for maybe as much as five years. Are there some specific issuers uh, or even industries where you like the preferreds more than others? Well, most preferreds are uh, not, not as much as it was in 2008, but a lot of preferreds, more than half, are still financial companies. Um, so when I get into preferreds, I like to pick the companies that are in the government's uh, too big to fail list. You know, you get the Bank of America's, the Morgan Stanley's. So if you did have another financial crisis, God forbid, you know, at least you know that the government's not going to let those, those, those banks fail. When you get into non-financials, um, there's still some good stuff. There's some real estate there. Uh, public storage has always had some very good preferreds. Um, Comcast Cable has always had a long track record of preferreds in their industry. So those are some good examples inside financials as well as outside financials uh, that, I, that I tend to like. Great. Let's go on to another one, which are so-called BDCs, which is Business Development Companies. Maybe explain what those are and the pros and cons of getting into BDCs. Yeah, BDCs are trickier in some ways because BDCs are a fund of loans. You see, uh, big companies can go to Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Merrill Lynch, and say, I want to borrow money. Let's do an IPO, issue a whole bunch of bonds, and I'm going to borrow money. Well, smaller, medium-sized companies can't do that. Um, for example, if Sound Income Strategies Retirement Income Store wants to borrow money, we need to go to a more of a middle market to do so because it just can't justify the costs of, of an underwriting in an IPO. So that's where BDCs come in. BDCs are pools of investors' money where that capital then gets lent out again to medium-sized companies, uh, very much like bonds, but really in the form of individual loans. So they're a little riskier because you have... Uh, because you have individual holdings, you have smaller, uh, essentially smaller companies in there, um, but they're diverse. 
and that also arguably decreases the risk a little bit. So now you have to look at things like, okay, this bucket of loans, uh, is it secured by capital equipment in these various companies? And usually the answer is not clear. You might get 60 70% that are secured and some that aren't. Is it first-tier debt, or is it second- or third-tier debt that has more risk of default? You also have to look at the industries. So uh, I'm always a little more leery to give specific recommendations with something like a BDC for that reason, because you're, there's so many factors. In fact, you know, in our own portfolios, we've taken, you know, we've taken the whole universe of BDCs, which is only, I believe, 60-some-odd BDCs, and we've narrowed it down to less than a handful that we actually feel comfortable with. Uh, so uh, BDCs can be good. They get higher yields than even preferreds in many cases, but you just have to do your due diligence. What would be the name of one or two of the ones among that half dozen that you still like? Um, we have, you know, in, in, in our portfolios, we have Main Street, we have Pennant. So we still have some, um, and we switched over time. We've had some different ones in there. Um, and some bars are the lower yielding ones because we want to be conservative. You see, this is more like a bond fund. And the reason it's more like a bond fund is because you're not holding the individual loans. Now, the good news is you actually have loans that have a par value, that have a payback value, that are backing it up. But you're not holding the actual loans, which means that at any given time, the fund, the BDC itself, can be worth more than or less than the value of all the loans. When you buy a bond or preferred, you don't have that the market establishes this is the market value for this bond, this is the market value for the preferred. When you're talking about the BDCs, because it's a fund of loans, at any given time, yes, it could be worth more than or less than the market value of the loan. And that's an additional risk that you have to account for. Another category are so-called MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships. They've got some pretty high yields today. That's typically in the energy infrastructure area. What are the pros and cons of getting into MLPs? MLPs are one of the riskier investments uh, in this spectrum. Um, you know, bonds have a fixed interest rate. Preferreds have a fixed dividend rate. Um, BDCs either have a fixed rate on all their underlying loans or a floating rate, but that floating rate is tied to some index. With a master limited partnership, there really is no particular stated dividend or interest yield. So it's really like a common stock where they can change at any time and decide they're going to pay out less. And if you hold, if you hold the value, well, your dividend just decreases. There's, there's nothing that you can do about that. Uh, again, with the others we've mentioned so far, you don't have that issue, but with uh, the MLPs, you do. And MLPs also arguably have some uh, political risk because it has to do with energy. And, you know, depending upon what administration is in office or uh, what's going on globally, it could affect uh, an MLP. So you definitely have more risk. It's a common stock that pays an extremely high yield. Uh, but, you know, but again, it's one of those tools. So if, you're, if you want to get yield, but it's not going to change your lifestyle if your yield gets reduced at all, because of one of these factors, then 
it's okay to look at MLPs. Whereas if it is going to change your lifestyle, if the yield gets reduced, that's where you stick more to the bonds and preferreds because they have that, that stated yield. Would there be one or two MLPs that you would still like uh, in today's market? Um, at this particular point, we're out of MLPs, so I would say no, um, not right now. Um, but in general, in general, though, uh, in general, MLPs definitely are part of it. You know, if I, if I were putting together an income portfolio and somebody just said, "Dave, do whatever you want," I would stick to you know maybe ten. 20% maximum on MLPs, no more. Another area is convertibles, both individual convertible bonds and convertible funds. What are the pros and cons of those? Well, the bonds versus the funds are two different things. Again, uh, the bonds give you a contract where you're guaranteed a certain interest rate and you're guaranteed a date at which it matures and pays back the full face value. When you own any bond fund, you don't have that. You have uh, basically, you own what's called the stock of a company that owns bonds. So you have a lot more risk. That means that if something changes and the bond price drops and, and you hold because you want to hold to maturity, but other investors panic, they're going to force that fund manager to sell at a loss. And therefore, um, you know, you could be the best, most patient investor to stay the course, but you're still going to lose money because that fund manager is forced to sell. As far as convertibles are concerned, Convertibles are really simple. In general, they just pay a little less interest than a non-convertible bond, and uh, but you have some upside if the stock really takes off. So you're 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 giving up a little less interest, a little bit of interest in exchange for that upside in your ability to convert to common stock should you want to down the road. And that's a great investment for the person who, again, has a little who doesn't need quite as much interest, they can deal with a little less, but you know, wouldn't mind the ability to get that, that big hit as an inflation hedge, if you will, if things take off. Do you have any suggestions for convertibles you like? Do you have some convertibles in your current portfolios? Uh, we stick almost exclusively to non-convertibles, and the reason is this. Um, right, first of all, we're trying to get the most income. Um, but second of all, right now, what makes analysis on convertibles a little bit of a challenge is the fact that what a convertible bond is is basically a non-convertible bond with a, call, with a stock option embedded in it. And right now, with the market having gone up, a lot of the bonds actually are priced as such that that option is worth something today. So it gives people more downside potential because if you get in now an elevated stock stock market, you actually... Uh, overpay a little bit for the bond, and if the market declines, then essentially you can lose a decent amount of capital. Uh, you still have a floor, um, but there's so much downside now relative to upside that we've been staying out of the convertibles at this point. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Scranton. Uh, he is the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the retirement income store. Advisors Academy and Scranton Financial Group. You can find out more about him at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the founder of Sound Income Strategies, the Retirement Income Store, Advisors Academy, and the Scranton Financial Group. You can find out more about all the things we're talking about at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, good to be here. So another area is REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts. Those have become very popular. They've done very well this year. What are the pros and cons of investing in real estate investment trusts? Real estate investment trusts are basically the stock of a company that owns bonds. It owns real estate, rather. Stock of a company that owns real estate. So, with, with, if you, basically, you're investing in rental property, mostly commercial, and some, some are residential, some are other things, uh, but mostly commercial. And as that property is rented out, those rental payments, after expenses are paid, come out in the form of a yield to investors. So, again, this is another example like an MLP that doesn't really have a, a par value, if you will, or a face value, uh, like a, uh, a BDC has indirectly or a bond or preferred has directly, because it's ultimately based upon the value of the underlying real estate. In addition to that, it has the other MLP issue I mentioned, that the income isn't fixed. In the case of a bad economy, uh, a large corporation will go to its landlord and negotiate the, the lease down to a lower amount, which is going to affect your income. But as usual, when there's more risk, whether it's risk of income reduction or risk of your principal dropping, uh, that means oftentimes there's more yield. And that's why MLPs and REITs can have some of the highest yields out there. And right now with interest rates, you know, taking another dip downward again, um, it's actually helped real estate investment trusts because people, uh, basically when interest rates are lower, uh, these can get financed more easily and therefore become 
uh, a better investment for a REIT company to buy particular properties because they can buy it with cheaper cash flow and therefore can pay more out to its investors. Would there be one or two REITs that you would like at today's prices, roughly? Um, you know, I, I, I always, like I mentioned before, public storage uh, with preferreds. Uh, I always like public storage because it seems like it's recession-proof. Um, if things go bad and people start losing their homes, uh, you know, they've got to store their stuff somewhere. Um, that's good. Uh, Vornado Realty is always a, a you know, a, uh, a big standby that you can, you can count on. Um, so, yes, there are a lot of companies out there like that that are big, that are reliable. Um, not as tricky to do the research as it is with BDCs um, because it's just real estate. But, but you have to look at, is it what kind of commercial properties, office buildings, is it uh, senior facilities, health facilities, uh, or is it malls? You know, if it's malls right now, you have to look at that and say, well, you know, is, is the shopping mall going to go the way of the cuckoo bird as everyone shops online? And those are some of the considerations you need to think about when choosing REITs. Another area are global funds that are high yield, because there are a lot of high yields around the world. What are the pros and cons of putting some of your money into global high yield stocks or funds? So, um, yeah, and I'm glad you said the word fund, and I don't know if that was Freudian or not, but um, when you're investing in global, um, global bonds or international debt, it's really tricky. Um, you have to uh, really understand that country's accounting standards. And, you know, we have standardized gap accounting here in the United States, but every country is different. So if you're out there trying to do your research on international bonds and trying to look at the financials of a corporation, chances are you're not comparing apples and oranges, which you're used to looking at with U.S.-based companies. So even at our size, with our analysts, when we go to international debt, we'll use... Uh, ETFs. It's one of the few times we'll actually use ETFs, which are essentially bond funds, because it's diversified, and we know that uh, we don't have to worry about doing the analysis on individual holdings. What's the advantage? Well, the advantage uh, isn't yield. Like I said, in many cases, the yields in a lot of other countries are lower than ours. But the advantage is you get some currency diversification. And Sometimes, you know, if, if, if interest rates are going up in our country and our bonds and preferreds are all dropping in value, that drives other investors into the United States, and that strengthens the dollar. And that means that we as U.S. investors actually make some money um, potentially abroad. So, so again, it, it's a great, it's great diversification tool to have a little bit in international bonds, because sometimes one zigs while the other zags. What would be an ex example of an ETF in a global bond fund uh, that you would like? Gosh, I don't even know if I could mention one in that realm, per se. It's, uh, there's just so, so many out there. We're limited because we're limited by size, given the amount of dollars that we invest. Uh, if I were just investing for my own money, as a lot of your listeners are, it becomes a lot easier um, to be able to go out and just and find something that, that works, that accomplishes your goals based upon the countries that you want to invest in. Very good. In your book, you talk a lot about what it takes to find a good financial advisor. What are some advice for people who may not be happy with their existing financial advisor? 
Well, first thing, um, you should look at somebody. I believe in looking for someone that's independent, although I will tell you that uh, there are a lot of good advisors that work for a lot of the big wirehouses, so that's not a, a, a hard and fast rule. Uh, I believe in looking for someone who's acting as a fiduciary uh, versus someone um, who's working as a commission-based broker. Commission-based broker uh, doesn't always need to do the absolute best thing for you, but a fiduciary does. Most importantly, though, Make sure it's somebody who specializes in what you need at that particular time. You know, in the medical field, we know if we have cancer, we go to an oncologist. If we have a cardiac issue, we go to a cardiologist. Back problem, we go to a chiropractor. We know this. But in the financial world, people don't really understand this. And, you know, there are advisors that specialize in the accumulation years, the growth years, and there are advisors that specialize in the distribution years, the income years. So if you're part of that income generation, you're over the age of 50, and you're starting to make that transition, um, make sure you're with somebody who specializes in income generation and someone that makes sense to you. If, if it doesn't pass the sniff test and you and your advisor are not philosophically aligned, then it's probably not the right person for you. Let's kind of sum up all we've talked about for the last hour or so. What difference will it make in people's lives, particularly when they're retired, if they take your advice and go into income strategies instead of growth strategies in the current marketplace? Well, retirement's all about income. And retirement, current marketplace or not, you know, to me, the best retirement is a retirement in which you have more income than you need each and every year. You know, you don't know what inflation's going to be. You don't know how much you need for health care costs. You can make all the projections, but you simply don't know. Income fixes a lot if you have an abundance of it. So by investing for income, it just protects your principal. You know, a lot of advisors out there today are using the withdrawal method. They're engineering income through the withdrawal method, keeping people in mutual funds too long, and just selling shares and allowing them to withdraw money, and hoping that they're withdrawing a small enough amount that they don't run out. Well, the problem is that if somebody lives too long or the markets turn adversely, that person might just run out. By going from the withdrawal method to the income method, by definition, you're doing what your parents always told you. You're spending your interest and leaving your principal. That means your principal is intact long-term if you want to leave it as a legacy for your loved ones. If you need to start spending down principal in later years because you take sick in your mid-late 80s and you want to hire nurses full-time so you can stay in the comfort of your home and not get forced into a convalescent facility, or even if inflation really starts to give you a stranglehold and you need to start spending down principal for inflation, you can do that in later years because you've protected it. Whereas if you're using the withdrawal method, all bets are off and you might only have half or less of the amount of money that you actually had when you first retired. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been David Scranton. Uh, he is the author of a new book called The Retirement Income Story. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, soundincomestrategies.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, David. Thanks again, Jordan. It's great being here. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.